You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Pete, Maz and Neil. From the Playboys and Provocateurs to Tiki Taka to Gagan Pressing, we'll be looking at some of our favourite cult sides and players from down the years. Shaky on the facts but heady with nostalgia, this is the football podcast you've been waiting for. So finish up your pre-match stretches and go with Four at the Back. It's incredible to think that we're 20 episodes into four at the back. We still haven't talked about Liverpool, one of the most successful teams in English footballing history. Today, we're going to put that right. We're going to go back to the 95-96 season, which probably isn't the team that you think of when when we think about that season. But the, the Liverpool team of that era, nicknamed the Spice Boys, had a lot more to do with that season than many of us would may remember at this point. We're going to jump in uh, probably the season before. In fact, it does go back a couple of years before that, probably back to the, the Graham Souness team that Roy Evans inherits. So um, we've got uh, we've got Neil and Pete with us tonight. Let's talk about that the mess that Roy Evans inherited when he took over from Graham Souness. Gosh, it was a mess, wasn't it? Liverpool is such a huge thing that I think the reason that you don't immediately think of them in terms of 95, 96 is because that decade is is seen as a bit of a lost one, despite how much good football they actually played in some of those years. But when you are coming out of a side that between 1973 and 1990, they only finished outside the top two once. That's the kind of pedigree that Liverpool are used to. 1990, of course, is the year that Kevin Keegan resigns having, not Kevin Keegan, Kenny Dalglish. Sorry, too much 1996 in my mind already, clearly. Uh, Kenny Dalglish resigns having lost, uh, sorry, won the league for the last time. But he's lost a little bit of something in the aftermath of Hillsborough. He's lost a little bit of the appetite for the, the fight. He's burned out massively. There's a lot of stress going on that he's spoken about. He's snapping at his kids and he's had enough and he needs to get away for a bit. And eventually he'll pitch up a Blackburn and win the title again. But Graham Souness, who's obviously one of their club legends, comes in and he decides that what Liverpool needs, having been to Italy and had success at Rangers, is he he needs to modernise Liverpool, drag them into the 21st century. Or the 1990s, I suppose, as it would have been then. And what he does is starts to put into practice a lot of things that were very unpopular with the side that we used to win in the league. Especially as they could, a lot of these players could still remember Sunas, who was not known for the kind of model professional behaviour that he was now trying to implement as a manager. I think his nickname was something like Champagne something or other. And yeah, it, it didn't work. He was trying to remold this club overnight in a new way of doing things and the players just weren't buying into it and it's similar to if you remember the right back in the very first episode of the series we spoke about what um Josef Engloss tried to do at Villa were things that would later become the norm but the players of the time weren't buying into it and Sunes encountered exactly the same sort of thing so he clears out several players tries to replace them with younger players who end up being hung out to dry. And all of a sudden, Liverpool have gone from being a top two side to 
yeah, they're not even in the title race for the next few years and they're, they're rarely even looking like they can even compete so Roy Evans takes over and he is the I, I suppose really the last of the managers of the great boot room tradition which extends all the way back to the transition from Bill Shankly to Bob Paisley and Liverpool look a very different side with someone that isn't quite such a disciplinarian in charge and people start to warm up to to, to this new coach and, and things improve very very quickly I think it's worth saying that that Sunas, I, I have a, got a lot of sympathy for Sunas in that he walked into an aging team. You know, he walked. I mean, when Dalgleish walked, he walked because of the the stress related to Hillsborough primarily, but uh, but also I think the writing was on the wall for that great team. I think the spine of it had got old together. So you know, you had Grobbler pretty much at the end. You know, Hansen retired. Um, Lawrence had been gone a couple of years by then. Um, you know, Gary Gillespie was getting on a little bit. Um, you know, Steve McMahon and Ray Houghton, although Houghton actually would would defy age and go on to play very, very well for Aston Villa. But um, he, he kind of walked into that team. You know, John Barnes ended up being much diminished by injury, at least during Sunessa's period at the club. Um, Beardsley got sold to Everton. Um, and so that that great 1990 title winning side, which is the team, probably the first, you know, great team that I got to watch. Um, you know, remember that team really, really vividly. Um, you know, they were kind of incredibly exciting team. I think when people were talking about, um, you know, when City had that 100 point season and when Liverpool last season was so good, you know, everyone was talking about the greatest Premier League sides ever and people talk about the Invincibles or, you know, or one of the great, the great first Ferguson side. That 1990 Liverpool team was absolutely outstanding. Um, but, you know, they, that kind of came to an end really, really quickly and Sunes made poor decisions from a man management point of view, as Pete just alluded to, but also the signings he made didn't work out. You know, he, he kind of made some poor decisions in the transfer market, you know, good, honest pros that he bought that just kind of didn't fit into Liverpool context. And funnily enough, like years later, Roy Hodgson would do much the same thing. You know, players that were perfectly respectable Premier League players, but just weren't deemed to be Liverpool players. And I think the Liverpool crowd has got quite a, um, you know, quite a harsh way of judging players that don't deem to be Liverpool players. So I think it went wrong for him very quickly. But then Evans obviously has the luck, you know, judgment and luck, of course. I've seen lots of stories over the years of him watching a teenage Robbie Fowler on these misty pitches. You know, you could barely see anything except the fact that, you know, uh, Fowler running away through the fog, having scored yet another goal as a 13 year old and stuff. But he he obviously lucks into uh, the emergence of Robbie Fowler, Stephen Alleman. Um, you know, obviously Rob Jones kind of came through a few years before, but, you know, um, were it not for injuries, might have been England's best right back of that decade. And so he's got like a nucleus of good players. And then some of the ones that Sunes bought end up coming good under the new approach. And I think what the most important thing that Evans did is he got them playing Liverpool football again. Sunes obviously subscribed to a more pragmatic form of the game, shall we say, whereas straight away, Evans had them playing Liverpool pass and move football because, you know, that's what they were renowned for. You know, they were a winning machine in the 70s and 80s, but they were a winning machine that played really good football with really good football players. And I think Evans 
brought that back and was quite tactically aware for the time. You know, he he started playing wing backs quite early on in his tenure and often had McManaman playing a free role off the front two and stuff like that. So, you know, it was it was quite different to a lot of what you saw in the Premier League at that time. I mean, we, we've talked about this young nucleus of talent that, uh, that emerges in the early 90s. It's obviously not the most famous nucleus of talent that emerged in the early 90s. So I, th- I think that's worth talking about. It's worth exploring because certainly around this time, people aren't really talking about Manchester United's class of 92. In fact, famously, uh, it's the first day of the 95-96 season where Alan Hansen says you'll never win anything with kids after Ferguson having sold Mark Hughes, Andre Kinchelskis, Paul Ince and replaced them with the likes of Paul Scholes and David Beckham and, and the Neville brothers. And of course, they they lost on that first day to, to Villa. Meanwhile, Liverpool have this, this embarrassment of of attacking talent coming through. You know, Robbie Fowler, if you go back and look at some of those goals he's scoring at that time, he looks unstoppable. McManaman is is dangerous. Redknapp is is making things tick over in midfield. The, you talked about Rob Jones, and um, obviously he got a, he got a really bad injury this season, didn't he? And I think it, it basically was a career ender. He had chronic shin splints, which basically, you know, completely ruined his career. You know, he, he yeah. should have had 100 caps for England, to be honest, but uh, yeah. he, he did have very bad luck. But Steve Harkness was a very able um, replacement. Uh, they buy Jason McAteer from Bolton, who plays think, very uh, well for them as well. I think Jones' injury comes a, a bit later. He's actually, he makes more appearances than any other Liverpool defender this season, I think, which because he can play both flanks as the, you know, when he starts out as a right back and then once Jason McAteer is bought in from Bolton for quite a, a large sum of money, as I recall, mm-hmm. um, and then, million, yeah. yeah, then Rob Jones is shifted over to the left because he can play there just as effectively. But, you yeah. know, McAteer for Bolton was a number 10, you know, so yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. quite interesting that, that, um, that Evans had that kind of tactical foresight, you know, it's almost like a, a forerunner to Beckham playing that right side, you know, because he had a good delivery and it, and it was similar for McAteer, you know, he he was a playmaker, he could survey bay the pitch and, you know, so you had Redknapp as a conductor in the middle, but, but McAteer could also do that from the right-hand side. So quite often you'd see Liverpool goals where they would be switching the ball from one, you know, from one wing to the other and you'd have, Collymore, once they signed him, quite often stationed himself out on the left and he was cut inside and um, and hit these bangers from outside the area. Or, you know, he actually assisted quite a few for Fowler that season. Like, actually, he'd received the ball from McAteer, cross it back in for Fowler. So there was a lot of um, a lot of quite interesting tactical play, I think, from from that Liverpool team. And, and as I say, very different from the... Um, meat and potatoes 4-4-2 that you were seeing from a lot of other teams. I'd, they were playing that way even when 
they played the 1995 League Cup finals. This is, you know, predating all the stuff we spoke about with Euro 96 and so on, and Terry Venables and Pickett and so much of the tactical innovation that comes around of, of seeing all those sides up close and personal. I mean, the, the side that took to, to Wembley that day, that day that McAteer effectively earned his move to Liverpool, because obviously it was against Bolton, um, was Jones and, I'm going to butcher his name, I've never been able to say it, Stigging a Bjornaby. Oh, I love uh, Bjornaby, what a player. Yeah, oh, as wi- the landing too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as wing backs and um, a back three of Phil Babb, John Scales, and Neil Ruddock, with Barnes and Redknapp playing as the central midfielders in, in what I suppose is, is like a, a three-four-one-two kind of formation. With yeah, Barnes played Barn, a free Barn role. In, yeah, Barnes shifted into the middle to make use of his great passing without exposing the fact he's got no pace anymore. Yeah, Barnes was. Yeah, he had some Barnes had some bad injuries during the Sunes era, and by the time Evans took over, he had to kind of reinvent himself as a midfield conductor, and did it very, very well. I think that I think you know when you you watch Barnes like now and again, he'll remind you of that explosive player that he was in his prime. Like I think there's there's one goal against Southampton where they essentially the Southampton defence kind of watch while he just basically waltzes around them and slots it in the bottom corner. There's no overhead kick famous overhead kick he scores um I think in the, maybe that's 94-95 season and he scores a couple from long range you know but I think people sometimes um because it's pre-Premier League a lot of people don't realize the player that John Barnes was like it, he was he was like Cristiano Ronaldo was in his Man United days that's the kind of player John Barnes was you know he was absolutely ridiculous like so he was by far the best player in the league 87 to 91 he he was the best player in the league by a huge distance unbelievable footballer and you know as he got older he adapted his game much as Ryan Giggs would do a decade or 15 years later I mean it's worth talking about Robbie Fowler who made his breakthrough it was 94 wasn't it that he that he that he came through and made the impact straight away a huge impact straight away and was scoring goals for fun I mean by the time we get to 95 96 he's still only 20 this season he goes he he's second only to Alan Shearer in the in the scorers charts he scores 28 league goals which is mental for for, for anybody let alone a kid but you, you you go through some of those goals that he scores and it's just the audacity to to basically take on some, some really brilliant keepers what he does to Peter Schmeichel this season is unreal yeah that, he, that near post one <laughs> the, the one at the near post he nearly takes Schmeichel's head off with it yeah. and then in the second half he you know Schmeichel has a little bit of a fumble on it but the the little dink he, he plays over the top of him to um, to score a second is is just incredible. And then in the in the return fixture, he does something slightly. It's just the coolest finish. He's got no fear, no fear of missing at all. Um, I think he's probably the best finisher, apart from Van Nistelrooy, maybe. You know, the coolest finisher I think I've I've seen in the Premier League. I, you know, I he was just lethal. He was unbelievable. I'd also say he might be the most prolific player to to have never won the Premier League. Yeah, he's he's the amount of goals he scored before his his 21st birthday is like absolutely it's just absolutely absurd. And you know, he it was kind of 
he was one of those players as well that, you know, he always had a, a sort of eye for the dramatic, you know, scoring a four minute hat trick against Arsenal. You know, the famous snorting of the goal line, the uh, supporting the striking Dockers with the, the Calvin Klein T-shirt that had the, you know, D.O. and the E.R.S. Uh, either side of it. Um, Peroxide hair at the start of this season. Yeah, the nose plaster. You know, he was he he was um, he was box office. He was box office, and and the, it's interesting actually. I saw that, that interview we were looking at earlier on, and he you know he sort of said all this stuff about them going down to London. He said, well, him and Manuel never left Liverpool. You know, they they only ever went out locally. So he he Fowler says he didn't consider himself a Spice Boy. He thought that was you know anyone that went down to London was a Spice Boy, but him and Manuel, you know, they were hometown boys. <laughs> Do you know that Fowler's the reason they got the nickname as much as he hates it? Because he was at the the Brit Awards and he got photographed with at uh, the same table as Emma Bunton and the press went mad about the fact that they could be going out with each other. Yeah, free free David and Victoria. This wasn't it as well. Yeah, yeah. This is I mean, this is obviously this season because Spice Boys was all in effect by the time they turned up in those Armani suits. So uh, so that yeah, doesn't it, help the cause by getting together with uh, with a member no? of Eternal. No, but so, uh, uh, but but yeah, that literally that's been seen going out with a Spice Girl made them the Spice Boys and it stuck even though Fowler as you say did, I think he said oh, I went down to London twice didn't like it <laughs> and uh, that's it uh, I mean, of course speak- famously now a property magnate Fowler he owns like about 200 houses or something yeah, half of Liverpool I mean, we've we mentioned briefly Steve McManaman do you know how many assists he got this season it's, it's, it's his best um, contribution season isn't it he got 25 assists in the league yeah, because uh, I my, I remember I had this conversation with Pete last summer, actually, because, you know, my my recollection of McManaman is, is always like unbelievable player to watch. But but if you compare it to, I don't know, like a modern wide forward, like a Manet or a Salah, you'd think, where's the end product? But but actually, this season is. is where he actually puts it together. I don't know if he ever quite has a season quite as productive as this. Again, he was a frustrating player to watch sometimes, you know, because he was so talented. But, you know, he did sometimes go down blind alleys. He did sometimes like try stuff that was a bit ridiculous. But, I mean, on his day, he was absolutely unplayable. I mean, the the other the other player they bring in for big money this season is Stan Collymore, who'd had um, a wonderful season at Notts Forest the previous year. Um, They they won't like Notts Forest. Uh, Notts Forest, come at me. No. Yeah, that's well, terrible yeah. this year as well. Get get, prom- get promoted, then come back to us. Um, <laughs> yeah. We yeah. apologise to the residents of Nottingham. <laughs> no, so I've, I've always had a soft spot for Forest. They were like, you know, one of the good teams, top four when I was growing up. Um, they were they, terrible this year. But yeah, no, I think there's this interesting story about Collier, isn't there, where actually Ferguson tried to sign in the year before. And Frank Clark threw off the scent by saying, I can't meet you, Fergie, I've got flu. <laughs> Which is like, would never happen nowadays when it will be agents and stuff. But um, uh, like Collymore, Barnes uh, compares him to to Brazilian Ronaldo. He said, you know, that, that he, he kind of had that, the dribbling, the pace, the hitting it off both feet. And while that is a bit of a stretch to say that Collymore was like Brazilian Ronaldo, he was certainly a really, really exciting footballer and if it weren't for his other activities shall we say he he certainly should have been a player that that had a a fine England career but he he just kind of I, mean, I think he was destined to 
he's not even in the conversation for players who didn't have as good an England career as they could have done. Like you reserve that for people like Robbie Fowler and Ian Wright and Les Ferdinand and Collingwood in this weird group underneath even that. Yeah, but Venables did think did about pick, picking him well, as, he a, did as a wild the, card. He picked him in the, the Umbro tournament um, yeah. the, at the start of this season in 95. And I think, I think it may have been his only cap. Um, yeah, it was like, I remember he, there was a lot of talk around when the Euro 96 squad was announced. Three caps talk, got. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about taking him because he, because he offered the, um, you know, that old football cliche. He offered something different uh, to the other strikers in the, the team because he was somebody that, that you know, um, you know, could hit one from distance, you know, could dribble. Uh, whereas the other England strikers, you know, um, were finishers primarily. And Collymore was a bit more of he had a bit more of an all court game, so he kind of it, it might have been a sensible pick to take him actually, but I, but in the end of course he d- he didn't go. But yeah, this is probably you know one of the uh, one of the better Collymore seasons as well in terms of end product. I mean, he scored yeah, nineteen goals this season. And what a talented player! Yeah, fourteen in the league and then nineteen overall. I suppose if you look at the the re- the reason the other players go is like Shearer gets over thirty, Fowler's twenty eight. Ferdinand is up in the high 20s as well and Sheringham is the one to then do that something different he's just more something different in line with what Venables actually wants for the side and and it was uh, the and, right pick oh absolutely and, and 16 goals in that Tottenham side no offense Neil is a much better achievement than 14 goals in that Liverpool side 96 um, that was that was uh... That was a kind of that was like an okay Spurs size. That was like yeah. the Jerry Francis one, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was, yeah. They were that, decent. That was like yeah, that was like seventh place one. Yeah, they were decent, but Liverpool were pretty damn good. So the fact that you outscored Collymore in that one is, you know, it, it just shows that it's the right pick anyway. Even before you start to factor in the tactical yeah. requirements, I think the one I'd thing have taken, that... I'd have taken Collymore over Ferdinand, I think, just because Ferdinand and Shearer were so similar. I know Ferdinand I was... had that epic season at Newcastle, yeah. but. I assume it's a if if Shira goes down injured, you start the like for like. So, That's uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I was just going to say is, um, I, I might have a a, a perspective on Collymore because when Liverpool sell him, he comes to us, and the suggestion. Actually, before I say that, you, you mentioned Ronaldo. It's funny. I've heard that comparison before. I think Roy Evans also compared him to the Brazilian Ronaldo, having tried to sign. Ronaldo when he was at PSV so I think he saw Collymore as the next best thing he could get at the time uh, and you know coming out of Forest that didn't look that ludicrous because he did score all every kind of goal you could imagine but what seems to be the case because he fell out with Fowler very quickly and the suggestion also was that he was used to being a big fish in a small pond and now at Liverpool he's just one of many stars and at Villa he didn't produce anything and was never the main man, even though the kind of money that we paid from suggests maybe he should have been, but he never did anything to justify it. He recovered the best of his form at Leicester, where he could be something of a big fish in a small pond. I wonder if that was just part of what did it for well, Stan. You say that, but he he only played eleven times for Leicester. I remember he, he, he and he still did. I remember he, 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 he still did more than he did for Villa. Did, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I think with Collymore, it, it, he was such a complex character. And back then, football didn't have an awful lot of time for discussions about mental well-being. 
and yeah. I think the the I think like Frank Clark understood him. I think Roy Evans understood him. It, it, but I think it was quite hard for him to find a place where he felt at home and a place where he felt like the merger was on his side. And obviously his talent was quite mercurial. You know, there's a touch of the Dalian Atkinson's about it. Unbelievably talented player, but could be very in and out of games. And fans can get frustrated by that kind of footballer. Is it also worth just kind of saying that you fall out with Robbie Fowler? It ain't going to be Robbie Fowler that's leaving. You're going to be on the door. No, absolutely. But then again, you think about how you, how, you know, Alex Ferguson, for example, handled the fact that Andy Cole and Teddy Sheringham couldn't stand the sight of each other, you know, it, it didn't stop them being a good partnership on the pitch. So it, it I don't know. I think maybe that is that, that does say something about Evans's management in that, you know, Ferguson would, was quite didn't care if these players didn't like each other as long as they produced on the pitch. It is also just worth the, you know this whole season that we've said Collymore does pretty well I mean they fall out within about three months of like him signing you know it's it's an immediate dislike so actually they still play him together I mean I think Rush still makes the odd appearance here and there but yeah, Fowler and Collymore guy, yeah. yeah Fowler and Collymore play pretty much every game that they're fit to play together and you, they do all right considering they can't apparently stand the sight of one another I mean it's it's interesting isn't it because I guess maybe there was an awareness in Evans that he did have Owen coming through. Uh, I don't know if you could make predict quite the impact that Owen ends up having, but you know, there was, I mean, I remember people were talking about Michael Owen as, as this guy that was scoring even more for Liverpool's youth teams than the Roy Fowler had done. And maybe that, maybe that did have a part to play. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but don't they go out? Who is it? They go out and buy for 97. Is it, is that when they buy Riedler? Carl Hunt yeah. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, so Reader and Fowler kind of a first choice at the beginning of ninety seven and then obviously this, this Owen lasts very long. Owen kind of um basically makes himself undroppable straight away, doesn't he? Pretty much, yeah. So one of the areas we haven't looked at a great deal yet, I suppose, is is the defence. They are playing a three man defence and there's about four four, maybe five players that are, are figuring into the, the centre back positions. Mark Wright comes in from Derby. It's a Sunes buy. Along uh, Rob Jones is another Sunes buy actually from Crew. So uh, so Sunes actually puts together a fair bit of this defence, but they end up doing much better for Roy Evans. The other kind of big expensive names uh, to go along with Wright that are Phil Babb, John Scales, and Neil Ruddock, and they're names that don't get mentioned a lot these days, uh, other than maybe Ruddock for the wrong reasons. And I don't know. I mean, I think there's it's possibly because. Liverpool didn't win anything. The, the defence gets blamed for a lot of that. But they, they were actually a decent outfit at the back. Better than popular memory would maybe have it now, I think. I think the reason for that is because both Bab and Scales were expected to be elite centre-halves. You know, when they when when they were bought, people were very, very excited about them. You know, Bab had been really, really good at Coventry. Scales had been... Really, really good at Wimbledon. Really classy, ball-playing defenders. Perfect for what Liverpool wanted to do. And they were kind of expected to go on and be England regulars and, you know, and, and, and totally change the sort of narrative around Liverpool. And I think it's probably fair to say that neither of them quite fulfilled their potential as it was seen. And I think it's maybe... We're still at the point where, in the Premier League, you know, you've got this 
still a, a quite heavy English bias. You know, obviously you've got the foreign players coming in, especially in forward positions, but it's still a, you know, a domestically dominant league, I think. And nowadays, you know, your equivalent of John Scales is someone like James Tarkovsky, who is quite happily playing at, you know, at sort of places like Burnley and, and, and doing very well. And But he's not a player that, that you kind of think is going to go to a big, big club. And I, I think... Don't, I don't know the answer to this question, but do you think that what affected Liverpool defenders um, around this time is similar to what affects Newcastle number nines these days in the sense that what had just come immediately before them was so revered and uh, reached such an elite level that anything that was going to come after would, was going to be com- was immediately going to be compared to you know the the, the Hansons and the Lawrences of of maybe sort of the seven or eight years before and it was they they were never going to me- measure up to them. I'm not sure I do think that's what it is, but it's certainly I think what happens in Newcastle's case. Uh, I think that's why I asked. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely happened. It definitely happens with uh, with uh, poor Joe Linton. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, obviously, Liverpool have had some great, great centre backs. You know, not just the ones you've mentioned, but also like Phil Thompson and, and other players that you can go on to. You can wax lyrical about the players that they had in the seventies and eighties as long as you like in pretty much any position. I mean, for me, what I think did it is they were actually for all their attacking verve quite an open side, and they needed a little bit more of that we're just going to shut up shop and ride this out for 10 minutes grit things out do that kind of thing and I don't think that always comes from the centre-backs I think that invited pressure onto the centre-backs sometimes but when you're playing someone like Jason McAteer who as as Neil mentioned is a 10 at Bolton and you're playing him as a as a right wing back and you have no obvious defensive midfielder but two creative midfielders in the in the centre of the park you know you're gonna invite pressure onto your defence and I think that's something that they wouldn't have had quite so much of at teams like Coventry and Wimbledon, who are going to be set deeper on the pitch. They're going to be expecting to have teams attack them a lot more. There'll be much more grit in the middle of the park and less focus on on attack. So, yeah, I think they were sort of a little bit naive more than more than anything for all the tactical innovation and how free flowing and and gorgeous it could be when they got going and they were one of the better sides to watch let's not forget so it's not like I'm I'm laying Liverpool out when I say this and you know they came third and reached cup finals and fair fair play to them but I do think it meant that there was more there's just a lot of pressure on that bat four yeah defense at the top of the league to be fair they they were very open team they didn't they didn't really have either you know what you what you'd term a defensive midfielder and no you know they they had ball players in midfield you know one of their wing backs was really a midfielder and so you know those three center halves had to do quite a lot of heavy lifting and the thing was is what I think all three of them um were quite inconsistent as well you know because obviously Scales and Ruddock both played for Spurs as well and you know, on his day, Neil, Neil Ruddock was a, a dominant defender, like absolutely dominant old school defender, you know, hard in the tackle, won every header, inspirational figure. However, <laughs> he also had terrible games where he mistimed tackles, let people run by him, mistimed offside traps, you know, so he, 
yeah, they were all three of them. I think were quite were quite inconsistent. And the thing was is that when Bab was at Coventry, he looked like he was kind of develop he'd develop into this kind of, I guess, I guess okay. A good comparison to Phil to Phil Bab would be like John Stones before this season. You know, he was expected to be that kind of you know ball playing, mature, calm defender. And at Liverpool, sometimes he ends up looking quite frazzled. Um, so, you know, both Scales and Bab had perfectly respectable Liverpool careers, as far as I'm concerned, but the expectations for them were quite high. Two things. You mentioned. Sorry, just just quickly, two things. My, just just to kind of feed, just piggyback on the idea of Bab being perhaps slightly out of his depth. My abiding memory of Phil Bab is um, that scramble to, to clear a ball off the line because he's slightly out of position. And he ends up crushing his nuts on the on the goalpost. I don't know if anyone remembers that. I, I do, yeah. No, Random Neil Ruddock anecdote as well, because we just had April Fools' Day as we record this. I don't know if you, if you remember this. There was a famous April Fools, right? Because it was when Predator boots had first come out. You know, obviously there was a whole. You got the ridges on them, and you can bend the ball and hit it harder. Neil Ruddock appeared in the sun, wearing supposedly a Predator headband. That would help him head the ball better <laughs> as an April Fool's joke. Brilliant. And so many people bought it. Like, yeah, literally thought this was going to be something that was coming out. You know, like, go to your local JJB Sports and buy a Predator headband. So the other thing is, say... <laughs> go, go on. Well, the, I, I very much enjoyed the fact that um, that the Spurs supporter among us has said because they've played for Spurs, these players must be inconsistent. <laughs> I mean, if yeah, ninety Spurs is the most yeah. inconsistent team ever in your life. Let me tell if you, the, if the shoe fits, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just going to say a, a couple of things based on on all that coming out. I think Bab, you know, you looked at him in his Coventry days in particular, and you looked at the ceiling that you thought he had, and that's exactly, what this yeah. goes to what you were saying. And yeah, I, th- I think some of this is injury that he didn't quite live up to it. Some of it is just being at Liverpool at a time when they weren't going to be the place to develop. And some of it's probably just that yeah, ephemera that you never can quite explain about why someone doesn't live up to potential. But there's that stature that he could have reached and never quite did. I think the best of the defenders was probably uh, Mark Wright, who, like Rob Jones on the wing, is someone that's largely undone by injuries. Um, and was old by then as well, right? Yeah, he was yeah, England's yeah. linchpin in the 90 World Cup playing sweep up, we're going to say. I vaguely yeah. remember him being sort of talked about being in with a shout of going to Euro 96. Oh, yeah, he's, I mean, yeah, he's, well, he's, he's really a hero at 1990. You know, I mean, yeah. he was, in 1990, David Platt aside, he was probably England's best player. Like he was, he was absolutely like he was brought in by Bob Robson for the third group game against Egypt when England had been terrible in their first two games, and he won the game with a header and was just so commanding that he he, he never left the side for the rest of that run to the semi-finals. So he was a seriously good player, but yeah, by '96 he must have been getting on a bit. And the other point that I was going to to make about the defence is, I mean, it's more of a silly one, I suppose, but is there anybody more out of place? in this Liverpool, cool, Britannia, mid 1990s side, the Neil Ruddock. But he was the one that was going out the most. I think he was the the heart of the social life. So in that sense, yes, absolutely, he fit in. In <laughs> terms of how much of a cultured footballer he was, maybe not. Although he could bang a ball. Like, there's one there's one goal in this season where, um, it's you know those, 
the classic where they introduced the indirect free kick inside the box if the keeper handles a back pass. And in that first five years, the back pass rule, just hundreds of keepers got caught out by it. And there seemed to be like every week there was one of these free kicks about two yards out and you line up the whole team on the goal line. And so Villa line up their whole team on the goal line, like <laughs> Andy Townsend marshalling the troops with his bad blonde highlights and uh, Razor blasts it into the top corner. He had a knack of scoring against us. He scored against us for, blood, for, for Millwall in about 1988 uh, in the in what would have been the, I don't know, would it have been the Milk Cup back then? I mean, uh, Zenith Data Systems Cup, maybe. <laughs> I feel Simod like Neil Ruddock plays for every, <laughs> Neil one of those players who played for everyone's least favourite team. He played for Tottenham twice, I know that much. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, but like, but like, Glamorous entertainers but, are happy, though. He he, but oh, he was shit out central, wasn't he? Still is. He he. I think you know, like I say, he he on his day was was a, was a was a serious defender, but but also was prone to have absolutely horrible games where it, it, he looked like he'd never seen a football pitch before. And he I think that was probably the ones when he was drunk. I mean, I was going to say he led some of those young players astray. I mean, Dominic Matteo goes on to be obviously a really important player for Liverpool after this season. And he goes on to Leeds and does well there, as I remember, if I Mm -hmm. remember right. But he was basically in this year um, and probably the year or so before his his primary role in the squad was Ruddock's drinking buddy, it sounds like. And there's a there's a story about them getting pissed up. And I think water skiing on Lake Windermere. I mean, there's, you hear all sorts of stuff that comes out of of that side, and there's you know, a lot of it is because they became the Spice Boys, and you know the tabloids start to pick up on everything that they did. A lot of it gets exaggerated, but so much of it involves Neil Ruddock, and most of it, that, and most of it that is involved Ruddock, someone's gone actually, yeah, that's true. There's that other anecdote where he was ordered during a kind of after an injury to do some recovery on the treadmill, and as soon as the physio had gone away. He gets off the treadmill and starts eating a bacon roll hidden in the in his copy of the Sun or whatever, <laughs> and um and he gets the nod from whatever player he was doing the recovery with, uh, the physio is coming back and so he kind of pours some water on his head, gets back on the treadmill and the physio says, "Ah, oh, great work, Razor." I mean, it's a weird time, isn't it? Because I mean, we we hinted at the start of this series about the impact that the extra money coming in from the Premier League had on some of these players and some of them just they didn't know how to cope with both improved financial position and the extra I suppose scrutiny that came with being a professional footballer in this new era and you know Ruddick liked to drink I don't think that was that was ever really seen as a problem necessarily I think this uh, these days he would never have been been a professional footballer but at that time, there were plenty of players. There, you know, England's first choice centre half was an alcoholic. It's, it, it wasn't uncommon for, for players in that position to, to do that. But this was a team with, with a lot of young players, and when you compare them with the, the Manchester United group, who were influenced heavily by Eric Cantona, and the, the one thing that that group credit Cantona with was his. His, his incredible professionalism, um, kung fu kicking Crystal Palace support and notwithstanding. And also they um, got rid of Lee Sharp for the reason that he was the exactly. young player that didn't that didn't fit in in that way. And Giggs actually got 
a lot of a lot of lectures from Ferguson early on because gigs started to, to go out a lot and so on and be a bit of a playboy and then Ferguson reined him back in and but what was interesting is that if you look at the character of those you know I mean I mean really I guess it's from like 95 they become really prominent but Paul Scholes had never left Oldham in his life and never wanted to you know Gary Gary Neville has only ever thought about football since he was four years old probably um same with Phil Beckham for all of his kind of glamour was like an absolutely obsessive trainer and was from the days that he was in the Bobby Charlton Youth Academy or whatever the hell it was all the way until until he stopped kicking a ball at the age of 40 you know he he was just somebody that 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 loved the game and and I think probably that grit that those United players have I think that was probably what was so unusual about them not just that they were talented footballers because they were but they were also footballers that got absolutely everything out of their talent you know Gary Neville was not the most talented footballer that's ever put on a pair of boots but he made everything out of what he had and I think that's why that you know the mentality of that United side was just incredible I mean the culture at the culture at Man United and Liverpool over the previous decade before that has a lot to to do with it as well because Ferguson had to clear out the drinkers in the late 80s because Man United didn't win things. You know, he needed to change the culture of that club. Liverpool had all sorts of problems with their players and drinking and fighting and all the kind of problems that went on with football through the 70s and the 80s, but they were still the most dominant force English football had ever seen for 20 years. So when Souness comes in and he's trying to change that, not only has he got people pointing at him saying, well, yeah, you didn't play like that. And I can remember because I was still, I was here, you know, the Ian Mulbys and, and people like that was, was still around. Steve Nicholl, you know, these were players that had played with him not only did he have that but he's trying to convince people that what they've been doing was wrong even though they were only out of the top two once in 17 years and that's a tough sell you know but Ferguson had to change things so once all those bad influences in inverted commas were gone you know the white side had been shifted out McGrath had been shifted out Robson had declined in importance at Man United over so many years and cleaned up his act a little bit towards the end I guess once that's gone, you re- you can institute a new culture. You can make Eric Cantona the model. I'm not sure that's something that would have been easily done at a Liverpool that, because they were used to winning, were still kind of stuck in 1973. I think I think it's more that those younger players played so well for Evans because he did allow them the freedom to express themselves. And from what I've read, he didn't restrict their activities off the football pitch because he didn't. He saw himself as a teacher, but not a disciplinarian. And Souness had been the disciplinarian, as you say, had gone wrong. And Evans had gone the other way. And I think, you know, when Houllier comes in, he manages to get both things right. Because he's very close to players like Carragher and Gerrard, who come through a little bit after this. And Owen. So he's very close to those those three really important young players. But he's also tough on the cultural stuff. And so he builds those relationships and he's tougher on the culture. So it's almost like, you know, I mean, I think Carragher always says that when Julio came in, that basically set them up for that long period of of sustained success under Julio and Benitez. And, you know, you could even say that that, um, you know, that, that when Klopp first came in, he had he had sort of some of that left over still. So it, it's 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 something I think that just I don't know if Evans could have played it another way. No, because no, I, because I, because the Sooner stuff had been so 
disastrous. I think being the kindly uncle was kind of the way to go. And, and you know, like McManaman, Fowler, Redknapp, those key players, you know, you, you wouldn't say that the that cultural stuff stopped, stopped them playing well. When you look at those two teams laid out for the 96 FA Cup final, the truth is, is that United has got a better team because we talked about that defence. We look at the United's defence and you compare it to, to Liverpool's. There's literally no comparison to it. You look at the midfield, Skulls and Keane, or well, it's probably 96, it probably wasn't quite Skulls yet, but, but you know, it's that. Maybe it's Barton Keane, actually. And, you know, you compare it to kind of Liverpool playing a couple of ball players in there. You know, up front, you'd say, yeah, OK, you know, Fowler was the one of the most lethal strikers in the league at that time, but... You know, Kanstar in that second half of 95-96 was just on another planet in terms of the influence that he was having on games. So, yeah, I, I think... I, I mean, I, I, I just want to... Go on. I was just going to jump in and say I didn't mean it as a criticism of any one manager. I, I agree no, no, with no, you. of course. I agree with you completely that Roy Evans coming after Sooners had very little option but to do something that would work. And if that meant putting an arm around people and just ignoring the odd transgression of your talented footballers, then uh, that was going to be what it was because Sooners had cracked the whip too hard and it hadn't worked. But I suppose the point was the reason that Sooners couldn't do it is because it just you know, the, the club was not set up for that kind of situation. Right had he then. made better signings, I think it might have took. But the fact is that the people that he brought in to replace the legends weren't good enough. And so then it looked like, well, you, you, you're doing this to our culture and you're signing these average footballers and the results aren't there. So, you know, and I think Sunas himself has said, the same, has said this, you know, he uh, he tried to change too many things too quickly. That's um, it. It's the speed, isn't it, that, he's tr- yeah. that he tries to do it with. That's and also... You know, you think about the fact that he was dealing with players that trying to deal with players that he had personal relationships with as a player. And, and that's that's just very, very difficult. But but yeah, I, 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 just, I do think that the um, the thing about mid 90s English football is that United had such, and it, it shouldn't be forgotten. United had such an aura around them that almost everybody, even Blackburn, who did win the league, but almost choked on the last day by drawing 2-2 with this Liverpool team. It was so hard for anybody to to, to beat United over a, a sustained period of time because they were just they were just a machine, weren't they? They just rolled over everybody because they just didn't make mistakes. Um, they were inevitable. And this, and this Liverpool team, like the Newcastle team who, who finished seconds, you know, they just they made too many mistakes. They did outplay United a lot and rarely beat them, which is quite a telling thing. That I was think, United all over, wasn't it? <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? You, it's, it's the old thing about teams that win even though they don't play well. And Liverpool were probably, you know, they and Newcastle were the most entertaining teams to watch that season. Like United, obviously, they had their own narrative that season, but it certainly wasn't about being the, the, the prettiest team to watch. To watch, um, it's probably the worst United team of that period, I'd say. Probably. You know, because the, the 94 team, as we said, was incredible. Um, and actually, uh, now with this amount of distance, you can grudgingly say they were good to watch, which I wouldn't have said at the time. But But then... You kind of look at this team and they were winning 1-0 a hell of a lot. They were grinding results out. They were reliant on Kanzner and Schmeichel to a fairly ridiculous degree, actually. You know, had Schmeichel not been possessed at the end of that season, had, um, you know, was that game against Newcastle? How many saves did he make in that Newcastle game? Oh, just, just 412. Absolutely, 
It was absolutely absurd. And, I think and, it was and, about 413 in the end. It was, <laughs> it was scoring every game, seemingly <laughs> winning, scoring a winner every single game. So that just put so much pressure on Newcastle Liverpool, and 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 obviously they just couldn't they just couldn't stay with it. So. I think that that season came down to mental strength in the end. I think you know we, we've we've highlighted in in this Liverpool team that there was perhaps a a bit of a an insufficiency of mental strength. We've talked about Collie Moore and of course David James in goal. Um, a very young David James in goal played played every game in the league that season. I think he played every game for them actually, but certainly not the finished article by any stretch. It was one of those weird goalkeepers who was good, really wasn't good until his mid thirties. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But, like he but played a lot he hit of this ridiculous peak. But he but he also he he played all the way through his twenties, didn't he? He was always first choice somewhere. Yeah. Um, at Liverpool for most of at it. At Liverpool for a long, long time and then you know and plenty of other teams since. Suddenly um, got good at Portsmouth as I recall. I mean, he was, be- he was better for everybody having left to Liverpool than he yeah. was for Liverpool because he was pretty good for Villa, a, a, one FA Cup final blunder apart. He was pretty good for West Ham. As you say, he caught fire on Portsmouth. You just wonder what, what might have happened had they been able to pick up, say, a, a David Batty or someone like, someone to give them that bit of steel in midfield and sort of hold a few of them to account when uh, things were going wrong. And obviously, you know, Newcastle felt a bit and... You, you could you could point at the players, you could point at the manager, you could ultimately. I'm not sure there are many teams who could have lived with United just doing what they were doing that season. Not I think, you know, quite. It, it was. It, it seemed inevitable from from the moment Cantona came back. It felt ominous. Well, you know what made it inevitable is that Liverpool Newcastle game. It's obviously the you know really famous one that we may talk about in more detail when we to this Newcastle side, which is inevitable because it's more important for for them, more important (laughs) for them. But what really like ends it is that having won that game in such dramatic circumstances, Liverpool go away at Coventry and lose. And that's them at the title race. And from then on, they they only win third. Uh, Villa finished fourth that year, Uh, but they win two and draw three of their remaining games. And, you know, it's not like all the remaining games were easy. They had to go away to Everton and they had a pretty, pretty bad record against Joe Royals Everton. They have to go away to Arsenal. But, you know, they also, you look at some of the games that they lose, you know, that season, you look at some of the points they drop in the running, like away at Manchester City when I think Man City were relegated that year. You know, this is not title winning form. And having done the hard work, you know, they beat Man United that year. They beat Newcastle that year. Having done that, they throw it away in results like, you know, 1-0 away at Coventry. And you'll often see that with Liverpool teams over over the kind of, yeah, what you might call that, that wilderness, you know, that wilderness era. Because, of course, you know, you then get the, uh, the Brendan Rodgers side who, you know, have that amazing result against Man City. And then get the the Gerard slip and you know and then was that Palace what result was like Palace, three, three yeah. against Palace or something two two against they Palace were, they were three up weren't they it's they, like were, crazy. they were three up against Palace and they bottled it Luis Suarez crying on the pitch you know it's sort <laughs> of but but that's the thing isn't it is that I think you know they won the title in 1990 and even at this point in 1996 six years felt an awfully long time for Liverpool not to win a title 25 years (laughs) ends up just being this enormous weight around their neck until they finally do 
But I think when you see what they can do, when you see what they can do to teams like Manchester United, like there were teams that just could not lay a glove on Manchester United and Liverpool, they, they weren't scared of them. Fowler, not scared of them. They got results against United. They got results against Newcastle. Arsenal. Not that it was a great Ars- Arsenal team yeah. at that point, but well, didn't they, Ars- didn't they finish like tenth or eleventh that year? Or that, was the, uh, or that was the season before. It was the it was the season before Wenger came in. I think Arsenal finished fifth. Okay. I think it was the uh, Rioch season, right? They yeah, beat they fin- Villa. They, they smashed hammered Villa. They smashed Villa. I mean, we were really good. We were fourth, and to be honest, in a more mundane Premier League season, we would have finished above fourth. We were good that year. We were really good. When we went to Anfield late in the season, we had the best defensive record in the Premier League. And within eight minutes, we were 3-0 down. That's just what they could do to you. I mean, it was it was const- it was constant. We couldn't get the ball to stick up front. The defense had us. Uh, we we've we've slightly slagged off the defense, and I think at the very elite level that's fair. But if you look at what they could do to p- 19 teams out of 20 in the Premier League, that def- uh, or you know 37 games out of 38, however you want to cut it, that defense was pretty damn good. And Dwight and Savo couldn't get the ball to stick. It was coming back at us. John Barnes was just running the show. He flicks um, the ball up for Steve McManaman and he puts it in. Then Robbie Fowler does something absurd for the second goal and oh, Steve Staunton's still recovering filthy. from it. The, yeah, that, the, and, that, he, and he still struck it from 25 yards out. Yeah, the third is outrageous. The finish, no, they actually don't have a problem with Bosnich for the first goal. The second goal. Is, the, sec- uh, the second one's terrible, yeah. Yeah, um, but the, the, the turn is outrageous. The shot is even better. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. And that's just what Robbie Fowler was. And... In many ways, this is what I think of when I think of that team, because 95 and 1996 generally were very, there was something in the air at that point in time, you know, culturally in Britain, it was amazing. And the Premier League played into that. What this? It was picking up by this point. You know, it was new. It was exciting. You had just enough you know, added interest from all these various new things that Sky had brought in, and it was really taking off. And Liverpool were... Box office, celebrities, whatever word you want to use. And they had the glamour to go with it on the pitch. And Robbie Fowler, Steve McManaman, those two in particular, maybe Redknapp as well, just to kind of spread it around a little bit. But they were like something that you hadn't seen before. And it just fit the the, the spirit of the age, for the lack of a better term. I think and, you, when, you, when you think about that time, you picture it's Blur versus Oasis, isn't it? And then... Same year. Spice Boys. That that's that's when when you think of that year, that's what you picture in your mind. Very much so, and I, and I think you know that Newcastle team had a lot a lot to do with that as well. It just so happened that you had these two really really exciting teams, you know, and then you had the juggernaut that was United, and obviously everyone loves to root for. I mean, at that point, you'd root for anyone that wasn't United, wouldn't you? And um, mm. and the fact that Newcastle and Liverpool were both incredibly uh, exciting teams to watch meant that and also it, it was enough distance from Liverpool being what United were by this point that you could kind of root for Liverpool again because obviously like it's a bit like I don't know maybe there will be a point if United don't win the thing for like the next 10 years maybe you might be able to kind of stomach United winning something again I'm not quite sure I'd have to have to have to see when when the time yeah. comes but, <laughs> but only it, if they've been relegated in the meantime yeah but it's it's that sort of weird thing where once a team isn't that team you love to hate because they're so successful you, you start to feel a bit sorry for them 
and you want them to kind of win something. And I think a lot of people did feel that way about Liverpool at that point in time. I think we've got to... to So I was just going to say, I think we've got to, now we've brought up, again, the comparison between Liverpool and and United to a degree. We sort of have to talk the cup final and those suits... I mean, that's not one of those too much. <laughs> well, I think I think you've got you've got to do it because it's the it has become the the condemnation, the the iconic image, all that. Have you indeed? I, I think <laughs> no. we, we need a, we, we need we need a video podcast for, for that. The, that is not a thing. I'm pretty sure I'm that. pretty sure Maz had one. But what I was going to say is, it's he got married in one of them. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> It's become the defining image of the side in many ways, you know, that and the ultimate condemnation of them. The thing that stands out for me is that we've already spoken about David James to a small degree. And one of the things that was supposed to have happened was that he would miss training sometimes to go and fulfill his modeling commitments for Armani, which is how they get the Armani hookup for those suits going into the final. And it was James idea. So, you know, a lot of this does end up being cast on the keeper, which isn't great because he's the one that punches the ball out for Cantona to volley it in and so on. But yeah. Barnes had asked him to get blue and James lied and said they didn't have any blue. And he, <laughs> and he brought the cream ones. And it's a bit like, I mean, I think, I forget who it was. One of them said, like, I think it's Roy Farr said, like, well, you know, if you're going to wear them, you'd better win. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the question. If they had one, would that, now be completely forgotten or would it be some sort of great symbol of mid 90s excess like our, would it be our sergeant peppers <laughs> the liverpool white suits yeah i think i think that's hard to say because i think if you if if they go on and win it then it might catapult them onto something else i think the i, I don't think winning that fa cup although the fa cup at that point it was a big deal i don't think that that in of itself would kind of excuse because there is everything else that went with it but the the suits are they're a symbol for something else they're a symbol for you know the unfulfilled potential and i don't think an fa cup win is necessarily fulfilled potential for that team for those players for robbie fowler to have not won a premier league medal is is mental in my mind considering how many goals he scored which is why i said earlier like it, it, it has the has the, has there ever been a player who's made more impact on the Premier League, who's not won a medal. So I guess it depends where they go from there. But I don't know, the, the, the question I was going to ask is, is, is this, a, given what we've said tonight, is this a team that, that reached its potential? Could Roy Evans have done any more with that team? Or is this really a tale of, of unfulfilled potential when you compare them against the, the class of 92? I mean, on the on the seats, I think it's worth, on the seats thing is worth saying that if it was 2020, nobody would bat an eyelid about the suits. But I think it was the fact that we were living in a pretty, you know, mundane um, era still at that point. You know, Cool Britannia was starting to peak out, but football was still its own, you know, fairly closed shop, and um, it just stuck out for the time. I think nowadays, you know, no one's going to bat an eyelid, are they? They're the white suits. Is it but, fair to say that Liverpool are the footballing version of be here now? <laughs> like wasted potential, yeah. Um, but I, I think I think the thing about this Liverpool team is, and I think with any team where you talk about maybe they don't fulfil their potential, is that not everyone uh, not everyone can win. I think I know that sounds like a completely 
uh, a complete truism, but no matter how talented they were, they were maybe a couple of players short, I think. And for anyone to dethrone that United team, I think you needed United to have an off year <laughs> and you needed to be pretty squeaky clean yourselves. And, and just if you look at all the teams in the Premier League that we've looked at, you know, we looked at the, the Villa side that, that pushed United pretty close in 92-93. We looked at the, the Arsenal double winners of, of, of 97-98 and, and they were the team that, that, that did to United what United often did to other teams, which was to kind of, you know, chase them down from behind. And, and I think that requires United to have an off year and it required Arsenal to have a pretty extraordinary year. So, so yeah, it's, it's um, to a degree, it's, it's, it's kind of, true that maybe you'd, you'd expect Evans to have won more with that group of players than one League Cup but if you contextualise it in the era not many teams that weren't United won trophies at that time so I think you have to kind of put it in context of just a team that was so dominant over the rest of the league and you can just basically I think it's fair enough just to admire Liverpool as a team that that were very enjoyable in their own right I think one of the Questions comes down to what would have happened if some of those players that were a little bit niggled by injuries could have played more consistently. And that's the only way that you can maybe see them get in over that final hump, if you like, to, to actually win things. This isn't the season that I necessarily think of Jamie Redknapp as being massively burdened by injuries and he still only plays in about just over half of the, the Premier League games. You know, what could have happened if you, you'd had him a lot more regularly, things like that. And these are, you know, wonderful what if questions, but they don't really change a great deal. They did have a very small squad is one thing that you could maybe say is something something they maybe needed to address you know this is becoming more of a, a squad game at this point and you know they do play the same core of about 20 players throughout literally the whole season it's, it's actually less than that it's you know by the time you factor in that some players are only appearing here and there you know Collie Moore and Fowler play pretty much every game in every competition how many so rush starts 10 Premier League games I think so yes you start to, and I don't think they start any other striker at all it's, it's literally the three of them it is hard to see how they could have gone any further and how they could have overhauled United and it's hard to see how you can turn the situation of a couple of years earlier around to create a league win inside so quickly when United already had a massive head start and it was huge by 1996. You know, this is, you know, if Villa had managed to stop Man United in 1993, things could have played out very differently. But once they win two leagues on the trot, things change and United have a structural advantage from that point. And a psychological one, more yeah. than anything else, you know, like most teams were beaten before they stepped on the pitch with them. Mm. So, yeah, do I think they could have had more potential? Yes, in terms of like talent, but. In terms of where you actually look at it and see what they actually could have done, maybe not. And, you know, there's, that's actually not that's not unique to them. You you will find all sorts of, of teams throughout Premier League history that in another year would have been good enough to win the thing, but they just weren't that year. And, you know, this Villa team this year could finish fourth. There are years in the Premier League where they would have been in a title race. They just weren't in this year. Because they're the three sides that were actually quite a bit better than them. And 95, 96 is a marquee banner year for the Premier League. Let's not forget that. And that's really what it comes down to is they kind of peaked at the wrong time, I suppose, in a sense. And the, once they have the, the 
I think the significant scarring of turning up and making a statement like that at Wembley and losing. There were a few players in that side who were never the same. And the best thing for Liverpool that came out of it was they became a bit of a cautionary tale for Gerrard, Carragher and guys who were well, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to me. It didn't help them win any league titles, though, did it? <laughs> Oh, bless them. But I mean, again, if you, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that Benitez, uh, the Julia slash Benitez team in a future show. But but if you look at them, they were unfortunate enough to to come up against Mourinho's Chelsea, Ancelotti's Chelsea and Ferguson's United when he rebuilt to have that kind of Tevez, Rooney, Ronaldo front line. So they didn't have the easiest of, of, of obstacles to get over either. No, there were about four Liverpool sides who could have won the league in that period where they went 20 odd years without winning it. And, you know, we haven't mentioned uh, Steve Harkness at any point yet. I did. So I chucked him at the beginning. Oh, right at the very beginning. Oh, that's, that seems like a while ago now. <laughs> it, did he do anything when he moved on to Blackburn or, or was he literally just a decent utility player for Liverpool? And he that was, was it. He was a decent utility player wherever he went, basically. But yeah, I mean, good, just just one of those solid Premier League pros, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I do know that he went to Blackburn and they were relegated fairly soon after, but I can't imagine it had much to do with Steve Hartness one way or the other, to be honest. I think this, I mean, this was a team that there were plenty of sort of decent pros in there, weren't there? I think defensively, they were, there were plenty of honest, hardworking pros in there. I think the small squad thing is, there were, there were lots of small squads around now. I can't imagine Newcastle had many more players that season. I think it just comes down to who stays I mean, Fowler stays fit the whole season. McManaman stays fit the whole season. Collymore's fit pretty much the whole season. It's really sort of you. You've got that the the other midfielders, Barnes, Redknapp, Mickey Thomas, who sort of fills in the gaps when Redknapp's injured. Really, I, I think at the time because there wasn't they, they didn't have the rigors of, of of European football at this point, so they didn't have to really worry about about managing a Champions League campaign at the same time. So. The, the small squad thing perhaps isn't as much of a um, a big deal as as we, we probably think it is now. They were knocked out of the UEFA Cup by Danish opposition this year. Just in case we've praised Liverpool too much and we want to get a few digs in at the end. <laughs> oh, yes. So that was all over by, by October. So, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I kind of missed the time where, you know, because obviously the Europa League obviously takes about six decades to complete every year. I do miss the days when it was like the UEFA Cup and, so, you, you know, they'd put out like second string 11 and get knocked out by some Norwegian team or something like that, like. Oh, those are the days like United losing to Galatasaray, like you know, banter like that. That was that was you know the true glory days of European football for me. I mean, they were knocked out. Of, well, sorry, the, the the team they beat in the first round was Spartak Vladikavkaz, who no longer exist by the looks of things. Sad times. Um, well, that's that's Russian football for you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's like all these teams which like existed during the communist era, then got shut down, then got renamed something else and then got moved to another city and it's, 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 it is very very odd anyway i feel like we have um we have We've transitioned into russian football <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so next week we're doing sparta sparta moscow that beat man united in 93 <laughs> um so i i think it's probably a, a good time to, to try and wrap up um do we have any sort of um final thoughts about this liverpool team i mean from my point of view i i have very poor memories of them uh, given what happened to Newcastle at the back end of that season so <laughs> my my opinion of them is somewhat clouded by 
by the events at Anfield in April of 1996. But I mean, just just looking at some of the the goals, they they were an exciting team to watch when they, when they were on it. They were probably the most exciting team to watch in the league that season. Um, and it's a shame that they didn't go on to to bigger and better things. And you think that core of McManaman, Fowler and Redknapp, had they stayed fit and had they been able to integrate themselves fully into that side that Houllier built, and then maybe they would have done something um, a bit special. But as it was, for various reasons, they, they weren't able to do it, be it injury or, in McManaman's case, just sort of his head being turned by bigger and better things, I suppose. But what do you what do you, you guys think? Sort of final thoughts on this Liverpool Roy Evans team? They were irritatingly good. Um, as a Villa fan, as I say, they always had our number. You know, we could turn over Man United as we did on the opening day of the season. We could turn over a Newcastle. We could turn over an Arsenal. Uh, we were always, it seemed, just destined to be beaten by some combination of Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler, and they would just play us off the park and. Not only were they so good, I mean, you look at that, this season in particular, because they also have another season where they finish third, and they're always third or fourth, they're in and around, they never quite put together a genuine title challenge, but they are never too far away, which is not something that you can say in the, the Sunas era, and it's not always something you could say in the Julier era, because the, the, the growing pains of that transition was actually quite quite remarkable, because it was a big job that needed doing. But you look at this 95-96 season, and... Actually, the, the problem is not the number of games that they lose. It's the number of games that they draw. They concede fewer goals than Man United. They eventually go on to win the, the title and they only score three fewer. So the, the goal difference shift between the two of them is, is like two goals. That's really all, all that's kind of in it and that score. But although they only lo- they lose one more game than Man United, they draw four more. And that's that's the small margins at, at that level against that kind of side you know you can you can't afford to drop that many points from winning positions and and to turn that many wins into draws and still do it that doesn't make you a less exciting side in many ways they were a better side to watch it's not unlike when we said way back at the start of the season because I feel like we've there's so much of this that's come full circle Villa and Norwich were often better sides to watch than the 92-93 Man United it's the same principle but you know and I guess that's why we'd like to remember these sides so much is because although they don't necessarily win things, they can actually be a better watch as often as not, just for that openness. I think of all the sides we've looked at this season, I I think this was one of the most rewarding ones to go back and watch some footage. Uh, I think I'd almost forgotten how good they were, actually, when they were on song. You know, they tended to destroy teams. Um, they they have they hand out a lot of thrashings, you know. Uh, it's quite interesting. There's a game against QPR where you know QPR are kind of parking the bus of that six men behind the ball in about the 20th minute. Teams were terrified of them because they they could rip you to shreds. And, and I think probably because United and Newcastle that season are always the storylines. You know, this team do get a little bit forgotten about in the popular imagination, other than other than the uh, the white suits. So. I'd say if you have not seen them play because you're too young to have or if you haven't watched any of these um, highlights in a long time, I would recommend uh, having a look on YouTube because Liverpool's official YouTube channel have very helpfully put up uh, goal highlights for every single one of their seasons in the Premier League, which 
let, let, let me tell you, not all Premier League teams do, having done this exercise the last like 20 weeks or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> to, to be fair, if you were Bolton Wanderers, I'm not sure you'd be putting up highlights from every single season you played. It's um, easy to do it when you've had strikers like Fowler and Collymore and Owen and Torres every, every nevertheless, season. Nevertheless, uh, a huge thank you to the Liverpool social media team for being so obliging with their uh, easy to find highlights. So do, do check those out because I, you know, they, this was a very fun team to watch. As one last final note, I just wanted to add as well that the box office continues beyond this season. And you know, they had a couple of big hits in transfers that really captured the imagination. You know, straight after this season, I think it is, they signed Patrick Berger and that got people talking because he'd had such a great Euro 96. And then they go and they bring Paul Ince back from uh, into Milan. And not only is that Paul Ince coming back to England, the you know, I think he was England captain at that point. They've brought him back from Italy you know, the greatest league in the world and they bought him to the Premier League, but they bought him to Liverpool when he was a Man United player. I mean, there were box office in more ways than one and the story continues from here for the next few years, right up to the team that becomes even more familiar and takes them into the 21st century. Okay. Well, thank you very much, chaps. Um, Thank you all for following us through season two of Four at the Back. We will be back in due course we will have our end of season special coming up within the next week or so where we'll we'll basically choose our team of the season where we basically have to pick at least one player from each team we've discussed this year in uh, in, in a best 11 i think there'll be some interesting ones this time around i'm not quite sure how we're going to do it i think the only stipulation has to be pete that you do have to go four at the back um <laughs> so until then thank you very much we'll see you next season if you enjoyed this week's show you can find more of us on spotify apple Podcasts, acast or you know whatever your regular podcast provider is Don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can also keep up with us on Twitter at 4ATBPOD, 4 at the back pod. Thanks for listening.